Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is William K. Mahoney. Bill Mahoney is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Religion and Chairman of the Religion Department at Davidson College, where he teaches courses on the religions of India. He also teaches workshops, trainings, and retreats on yoga philosophy across the U.S. and abroad. His books include The Artful Universe, An Introduction to the Vedic Religious Imagination, and Exquisite Love, Heart-Centered Reflections on the Narada Bhakti Sutra. So hello, Bill. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello. It's good to be with you. So before we chat a little bit about some of your work, I, I really want to talk to you today about um, a book I've really enjoyed reading, The Artful Universe, and, and also um, your work on bhakti. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit first about your own personal story, um, your relationship with yoga, and maybe how it's evolved and, and led you to the work that you do. Okay. Um, I... I... I grew up in Colorado, and I have a, a great sense of kind of the, the beauty and mystery of uh, expansive space. And, um, and, um, and then uh, started a Zen practice, a Zen Buddhist practice, um, at about age 18. Wow. Uh, and uh, had continued that Zen practice for uh, a few years, and then... When, when I was 18, uh, I just think I was about 18, I um, uh, also read the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads for the first time. And, um, and I felt as I was reading, particularly the Upanishads, I, I felt that uh, the words kind of glowed and almost uh, vibrated or uh, jumped off the page. Yeah. I felt that... Um, as I was reading them, I, I, I had a hard time sleeping that night. I was just so kind of uh, energized by reading them. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that they were saying something that at a very deep level I already knew and that these were giving words to some very deep experience. And I was uh, drawn to them and I found them very compelling. These, this was in translation. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, went to India when I was um, about, when I was 20. I actually turned 21 in India, wow. and you know that's a that's an important time in in just about everybody's life. Yeah, uh, time of exploration, and uh, and that was the case with me. I was there for about six months, and I traveled all over the place. It was mostly by myself, but I spent time. I I traveled by bicycle and bus and train and. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in uh, meditation centers and um, and temples and um, and ashrams, and I uh, I found myself becoming you know, a, a very just very drawn to it and uh, and resonated deeply with it. Um, I was also moved very moved by the range of human experience uh, in India. Mm -hmm. From the most beautiful to the, to the most uh, disturbing in some ways, yeah. And and I found it all very uh, my heart just opening, um, and feel I felt very alive. I, I, I mean, I still do. Um, and I and I uh, and I found that as I was coming to know uh, some something about India, reading more, uh, reading translations more and more visiting the temples, the meditation sites, and practicing, continuing the practice of meditation, um, I, I came to, I think, an, an increasing sense of a kind of gracious divine presence um, within all things, within all of the range of human experience. And, um, and I had some intuition of that gracious kind of presence supporting me as well, within me and supporting me inwardly. And uh, I came to identify this as a kind of mystical presence or the mystical experience of this presence. And, and, I, and I wanted to know more and more about it. And uh, so I came back to the United States. I returned to college and uh, majored in, in English literature. Um, I was mostly uh, quite drawn to the uh, romantic poets who, uh, uh, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Emerson, 
uh, who I, I felt were um, were were speaking of this of perhaps similar intuitions, uh, Yates and Blake. And uh, after I graduated from college, I, I realized I really wanted to go deeper and deeper into this. I, I, I had started an asana practice several years previous to this. Um, and I wanted to know more and more about uh, the religious dimensions, aspects of, um, of these intuitions that I was, was uh, having. So I went to uh, divinity school and learned about uh, religion in <laughs> divinity school, different religions. And then went to, uh, and then I earned my PhD in uh, comparative religions, compar and history of religions and comparative religions with uh, an emphasis on the religions of India. Uh, during that time, I studied Sanskrit throughout. I studied Pali and, uh, and uh, came to be able to read uh, at least somewhat the texts in their original form. Mm. And um, um, then I became a professor. I've been a professor here for 36 years now, teaching students about the religions of India and yeah. taking students to India. Um, I find that I'm very interested not only in the, the mystical dimensions, the contemplative dimensions of uh, religions of India. Um, I'm also interested uh, in, in, in poetry and, and the way uh, these intuitions are expressed through words and, and through sounds and, uh, and the, the place of, of the mantra and the role of mantra and um, and that leads then to you know an, an, uh, an exploration of the nature of the body and how does in, in what way is the body a kind of poem as it were, uh, uh, and um, and then I, uh, I had the sense of, I, I've mentioned this kind of gracious presence that uh, that supports all things is within all things. Uh, I, I became more and more comfortable with language of love of. Um, of this presence as love, and uh, so so my initial kind of uh, interest in Upanishads, Vedanta, and then the earlier on in uh, going earlier into the Vedic suktas, the Vedic poems and songs, um, uh, the my the it, it, it my interest then kind of. Uh, what's a good word i don't want to say refined or shifted because it was there all the time but yeah. but uh to me it, it, there was a, a a connection an inner connection between the experience of of um of divinity and and uh and the experience of love mm. So that, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just, I just wanted to ask, you know, because uh, going back to um, uh, the idea of poetry and the body as a poem, which I think is so beautiful. I don't think I've ever um, heard anyone express it like that. Um, obviously, it relates really nicely to your work on um, uh, the Artful Universe, which mm -hmm. I've had the distinct pleasure of reading. It's really beautiful. And, you. and your, your ability to kind of capture the... The, the, this kind of culture that really, rather than you know the scientists like our our day being the high priests of culture, it's really the poets and and you know as much as I've you know known and studied um, Vedic um, teachings, I've never quite seen it kind of articulated in this way. So, what led you to was it your own experience with literature that really allowed you this insight into the Vedic? Um, you know, worldview as being coupled with this kind of um, artful, creative capacity. Uh, um, so could you talk a little bit about the kind of inspiration behind that book? Yeah, I, I, uh, it's hard for me to separate my, uh, my, my, my kind of poetic sensibility from my mystical sensibility. That, right. uh, in some ways, they're the same. And so it's not that one led to another. Yeah. Um, I, I think having said that, that uh, mystical intuition, in a sense, preceded my um, my conscious kind of attention to poetry. Poetry, uh, to me, came to express the mystical intuition. So, so uh, said differently, my interest in, in my interest in Veda and Vedanta. And then uh, also Theravada Buddhism and, and early Theravada and then Tantra um, 
I think that, in a sense, found expression in in the uh, the poetry, um, uh, and uh, you know the recognition of well, like I said, some of the romantic poets in in the Europe and North America. Um, I think reinforced what I was what I was feeling already. Mm. Um, I think one one thing to keep in mind is is the understanding of the word Veda itself, and and uh, as as you and your listeners um, probably know, the word Veda has something to do with knowledge yeah. and uh, sacred knowledge, um, and uh, and knowledge that uh, knowledge of the sacred, as it were, and knowledge that is sacred. Um, and what is this knowledge of? What is the content? It's it's the it, it is what uh, what we what are addressed as seers, rishis, are are uh, see the world um, as we might say sacred, and uh, and uh, and that uh, seeing the world as sacred in some way, they uh, they are then able to express that vision, that 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 intuition, that vision. It's known as D. Um, with words, hmm. so that so that the words are actually the expression of the vision itself. So that uh, the the words are visionary words, and um, uh, these these rishis who have this kind of inner vision uh, of the sacred world um, uh, become known as dira. Uh, one of the words that we can translate as kind of wise sage. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that word dira, uh, and d is connected to the word dhyana, which means meditation. <laughs> mm. It's all sort of connected. Um, uh, a perception of mystery and of beauty, and uh, and the intuition of of, um, of a powerful presence, and then the um, the articulating, expressing it in words and in sounds, and uh, and with one's actions. Uh, kind of a basis of ritual, the, the the activity in the world that supports the sacred world, the, the conflation of action with word, uh, ritual and poetry. <laughs> it's all there in the, in the Veda. Yeah. Wow. So um, what is the role then, you know, um, you're speaking about this kind of uh, creative sort of upsurge of knowledge through poetry and and so I guess it's it's worthwhile to talk about, um, since we're talking about Veda and the meaning of Veda, what Urta is and oh. how does that relate to Veda and why is that so important to our understanding of the Vedic kind of worldview? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's good. The, the, the word Urta, um, if, if you're trying to, uh, well, you just say it, Urta, um, it's a Sanskrit word that, that uh, literally means that which uh, turns or uh, that, which, uh, uh, and it has a sense of that which is always turned. And, and uh, so there's a sense of a kind of an eternal dynamic movement. Yeah. Uh, and it has a sense of, of balance and harmony and order. In fact, it's related to the English word order. Uh-huh. So they, these, vision, these Vedic visionaries looking out into the world, into the universe, um, saw a world that is uh, uh, balanced and harmonious in its natural state and, uh, and dynamic. It's, uh, there is a, a kind of um, artfulness to this world. In fact, the English word art is related to the Sanskrit ritta. Uh-huh. As are other words like order and, and other other words like that ritual itself. Um, so that's part of the con- what these uh, visionary sages saw. They saw ritta. They saw um, uh, a, a a dynamic uh, principle of harmony and balance that is very ecological in a way, where everything fits together in in the natural state. Everything fits together in a perfect way. And is in a dynamic, moving way, so that you know the seasons follow each other. The moon goes through through its cycles. The sun rises and sets every day. You see that that within the movements of the world, there is a there is an order, an, an artful quality to it. Mm. And then, what is the role then of imagination in relating to, or seeing, or becoming aware of that vitta? Um, 
it is the imagination and and now we're we're translating words like d yeah it is the imagination that is able to um what's a what would be a good word to internalize that vision um and to and to uh to draw that the the outer world the the, the vision of the outer world to draw it within oneself and to see those same dynamics working within one's own awareness, within within one's own consciousness, even within one's own body, and um, and if you if you think of the word imagination, I mean, imagination is the is the making of an image. Yeah. <laughs> see, the the forming of an image um, here within within the mind itself, the forming of the of an image of this dynamic. Um, uh, order this dynamic uh, principle of harmony and and, and um, beauty, mm-hmm. and uh, and and forming images of it, and in in one case forming verbal images of it, and and the verbal images then become the the poems, the the songs, in praise of of the gods and the goddesses who are said to be forces that uh, that align with this universal vitta, this universal artfulness, and in their own power of divine imagination, according to the Vedic songs, um, form images in their own minds and then uh, project those images outward and live with and, and then embody them. I mean, dwell in the images that they have projected and those images that they are said to have projected become the physical universe so that so that the imagination is actually creative there is a, a creative quality to the imagination as well as a kind of revelatory function of the imagination it's, it's through the imagination that, that this ritta is revealed um, and then when ritta in some way is threatened uh, through acts that that destroy the or threaten the the uh, universal harmony of, of uh, the world, the universe, um, it's the imagination that sees possibilities, ways to um, to heal it and to uh, to put it back together again. Yeah, um, and and this was one of the functions of ritual in the Vedic world, the the yajna, the offering. It, it was a way of in an active way, physically dramatic way, putting the the balance and harmony of the natural of the world back together again. Hmm. Where do you think? Speaking of ritual, um, because I really liked, I can't remember exactly the way you expressed it in the book, but there was something about the way you spoke about ritual that seemed very. I don't know. It sort of brought to light a way we might relate to ritual now that would be very fruitful as opposed to this idea of ritual as sort of, you know, empty ritual, something that like habitually we do culturally. And you could even say, or some people have said about the early Vedic um, practitioners that it just became this sort of like empty repetition of ritual, blah, blah, blah. So how might we see this idea of ritual as, as you describe it in, in, in the Vedic imagination as serving a kind of, um, purpose of, of integrating our experience with our environment? Um, well, uh, if there, you know, if, when there is the, the sense that, um, um, that unritta, which is a word meaning against ritta, yeah. um, uh, one of the synonyms for ritta is satya, which means truth. We see that in the yoga tradition as well. Uh, and so a synonym for unritta is asatya, untruth, um, falsehood. Um, when there is something, there is the sense that uh, truth and, and, uh, and goodness and beauty in some way is threatened, um, then uh, in the Vedic vision the vedic world human beings can actually do something about it they can um uh, uh, gather um they can gather substances that are that are good and beautiful and filled with life and uh 
and they can bring them to a sacred fire. This is this is very Vedic. Okay, they can bring it to a, a sacred fire, and uh, and uh, the the sacred presence within the fire, identified as Agni, the, the god Agni, will then enjoy or eat or drink of those those um, offerings and will uh, bring them to the heavens along the the column of the smoke and and uh, dis- and distribute them to the to the divinities the gods of light and uh, and when there is the the light then the, the light can be renewed and and rain falls and and the cycles of of the universe continue you see so so my point is that that the human beings can have in, in the Vedic world, human beings have a sense that there's actually uh, the the possibility of participating in this rita in in this dynamic cycle of existence, right. and it's when they forget, uh, I think, using the language that she used earlier, that when they forget what is the kind of inner meaning of this right this drama, this drama in the best sense, this this um, this activity on a stage, as, as it were, which is ritual, um, when they forget the inner significance of it, then it becomes without a kind of um, significance. It, there's no signified to the signifier, as yeah, it were. Yeah. And, it, and it becomes empty and becomes meaningless. And, uh, and I think this is part of what leads to the Vedanta, um, so some of these sages and and their their students, their teachers. I mean, their uh, yeah, their students um, began to ask, "What is this ritual that that we are performing? Why are we performing it? You know, do the gods really exist? I mean, uh, does does our action in the world really have any significance or meaning?" And uh, and so, what the uh, the Vedanta teachers, the teachers of the Vedanta, the Upanishads, and and their commentators. Um, realize is that uh, all of that which is sacred that is in the outside world, the outer universe, is also within each one of us, and that the outer expression of ritual is actually an expression of our of an inner state, you know, uh, understood from a, the Vedic perspective, from the Vedantic Vedic perspective. Um, and uh, so that so that there's a this realization that there's a there's a homology between yeah. the outer world and the inner world, and that's that is what makes the the ritual actually significant is is the ritual is the outward expression of of inner states, mm. and um, and, uh, and that's the that's the link then with um, contemplative understanding of ritual, right. And, and uh, you know, I, I see very similar ideas in Tantra. You know, it's not a, a Vedic concept, an Vedic tradition, of course, but um, that outward action follows inner states or is an expression of inner states, and that um, 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 that is when ritual becomes significant, is when one realizes that this is an, an, an expression of an inner state rather than an outward. I see. I see. Beautifully said. So, so then, would it would it be safe to say then that you know we might we might say that some kind of uh, incarnations of religion have become more about the external ritual and have lost sort of maybe we'll call it their esoteric core or essence. Yeah, I I, I think in, in some ways, I, I mean, I've I've heard people say that this is that's the shift between a kind of mystical intuition, mystical participation, contemplation into what we might call religion. I, I, yeah. I'm, not, I, I'm not comfortable with saying that myself. I, I appreciate the word religion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, that uh, when it becomes rote, when it becomes activity that is not understood in the context of, of a deep inner uh, experience, then it becomes empty. Mm. Yeah. So can I actually push you on that? Because I like what you said, how you, you, people do describe this as, you know, the dead the dead rituals are what we might call religion, and then there's the mystical. So, but you were mentioning that you like the word religion. So if we were to kind of <clears throat> get more nuanced about it, uh, what do you see as being beneficial in what we might call the practice of reappropriating the word religion in a more, in a less rigid, as it's become passed down sort of way? 
Yeah, well, one way um, one way I, I'd like to do this, and maybe it's helpful, um, is to uh, think about the word religion itself, the word religion, the English word. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is that it comes from uh, religio, and I think it's in Latin. Um, religio, which means a re-linking, a rejoining, a reconnecting, and um, and so uh, if there is the uh, the sense that in some way the world has become broken or or fractured or there has been some sort of separation between um, uh, heart and world or between <laughs> between people, you see that a bit. Uh, in, in, in sort of uh, traditional terms, it's some sort of difference or separation or break between uh, divinity and human spirit, then um, then there is a uh, there is the possibility of relinking, you see, of yeah. rejoining, yeah. and and that is religion at a, at a kind of literal level. That is religion. It is the it is the integration. I love. I, I use the word integration all the time. Um, religion is integration. It, it is integrating what has, in some way, come to be felt as disintegrated. Um, and so, uh, when there is a, a ritual uh, performed with understanding of, of the the significance, the inner experience, the inner significance of this ritual, social significance, natural, cosmic significance, yeah. um, then there is uh, a relinking with that significance. You see, and that's religion. Yeah. Now, just just um, to, to go on a little bit further. Um, that idea of linking, of joining, connecting at, at all levels, um, outward, inward, uh, mental, emotional, um, physiological, and all of that then it could be said to be yoga yeah. as well. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with the, the use of uh, religion, the word religion and the word yoga. I, yeah. I don't. I don't think they're completely separate from each other, at least the way I think about it. Yeah, I really like that way of thinking about it. I think that's very insightful. So um, now, you know, since we're on this subject, um, what do you think, obviously, you know, you study the Indian religions or the Indian um, traditions and and from an insider point of view, some of uh, the practitioners refer to what they're doing as Sanatana Dharma, as this other word for the Hindu um, spiritual um, perspective. So what do you uh, see as being the kind of main difference between Dharma and religion? And maybe, you know, with your kind of um, Mm. the religion as a way you've kind of described it, maybe there wouldn't be much of a difference, but I'm curious your thoughts are on that. Well, <laughs> here I'll, I'll I'll be the professor again here. Okay, that, go for it. Uh, let's look at the word dharma itself, um, and uh, as you likely know, it uh, it comes from a, a verbal root that that means something like uh, something to do with support, mm. that which supports. Um, so a pillar, for example, is sometimes described as dharma because it supports the, uh, yeah. the ceiling. Okay, um, and so the uh, a kind of basic etymological meaning of the word dharma is that which supports. And so, well, supports what? <laughs> well, at one level, uh, supports the world. Dharma is uh, is that which supports existence, um, supports life, uh, supports goodness um, and uh, and and there are different ways of supporting you see that that there there are ways that, that one can act in the world that uh, are supportive of of the integrity of the integration of the world and there are ways that one can act that actually serve disintegration can end up destroying the world you see so we have an idea of Dharma and adharma and um, and with this idea of support, uh, the, supporting that which is good, that which is true, if you want to use words like truth, dharma also then means truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dharma also means that which expresses the truth. So you know, dharma means teachings, you see, particularly in the Buddhist context. Yeah. 
Um, but um, this idea of a sanatana dharma, of an eternal dharma, sanatana meaning roughly, you can translate as kind of timeless or eternal. Um, the idea that that uh, there is that um, that there are ways and attitudes that one can hold that actually uh, um, one one can hold throughout time, uh, and, and that uh, and that have been have been uh, supportive in the past and you know will be supportive in the future there are there are ethical ways of living um there are ways of honoring beauty and goodness and truth you see now uh, then some people um will then uh, associate what what might be called hinduism which is a very vague term right hinduism with sanatana dharma um and that's that's where we usually hear it, the reference to that phrase sanatana dharma as a as a, uh, coming from the Hindu perspective. Um, but the word Hindu itself is problematic. I mean, you know, it, it literally means something to do with a river, somebody who lives by the river. And <laughs> uh, if you had gone back to India, you know, several centuries ago. Um, and asked, are you somebody? Are you a Hindu? That person might say, I don't live anywhere near the river. And say, it's, a, <laughs> it's a geographical and political word. And, and what? And it was a word sort of established by those looking from the outside, correct? It was yes, kind correct. of a Western impo- um, imposing of a term on on a geographical people. Exactly. We see it used in some of the by some of the Greek uh, emissaries and from from Greece to. To what we now call India, it, it comes from the word Indus, which is a river. It means yeah. she flows. Okay, and and the the those who were uh, lived on the other side of the Indus were known. You know, they were Sindhus, as it were. And I'm, I'm conflating history a great deal here, but and then they were known as Hindus by the people who didn't actually live there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by you know the Greeks. And then the Persians and and others and and, um, and then the European colonialists and that sort of thing. Interesting. So um, I want to go kind of go back maybe a little bit and and I, I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple concepts or I don't know experience is the right word concepts doesn't quite grasp it but um, that are in the the Vedas and that you speak a lot about um, because I want to kind of explore them a what they mean and what they were but also maybe looking at them and seeing what uh, essentially Vach and Soma. I want to talk about Vach and Soma. And then mm-hmm. I want to explore how these might be seen as more than historical anachronisms, you know, how, how we might experience Vach and Soma in our kind of, I don't know, lives. And I know you do a lot of work with yoga teacher training. So I'm sure we get, you get, maybe get asked this question a lot, like how we can relate to these ideas. So first, I guess, what are, what is Vach and, and, and what is Soma? And, and then we'll kind of get into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, from the Vedic perspective, Vach is the, is the creative word. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if, you, if you kind of spell it in Roman transliteration, V-A-C, you can almost see the English word voice there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Vach is identified in the Veda as uh, as feminine. It's uh, she is she is she, yeah. <laughs> as a goddess, as it were, uh, a, a power of, of creativity. Uh, goddesses are are powers of creativity, um, and in uh, some of the songs of the uh, Vedic, the the, the the Rig Veda, for example, mm-hmm. um, the universe is said to come into existence through the through her singing a song, mm. she she sings forth the universe, and her her voice becomes many syllables, and the many syllables become the many um, things in the universe. So the whole universe, from this perspective, if you know, I could interpret it this way, I, I do interpret it this way. The whole universe is her song. Mm. The whole universe is, is so and, and we are we are her syllables, and um, yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I think you can probably see a, 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 almost a direct connection then with mantra. Yeah. That, 
Um, exactly. Mantra is the articulation of, of the goddess, of Vach, you see, of, of the universal power of, of uh, creativity, the universal presence, um, transforming, reformative power. Um, and of course, the, the mantra being uh, an integral uh, component of uh, particularly of Tantra, well, Veda and Tantra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Soma, um, I think if, if we think of, of Vach as the universal voice, the universal word, Soma is uh, the, the universal essence of life, the, um, the, uh, uh, the refined um, element of life that uh, is uh, uh, the the power of life. Now, I'm, I'm not really I'm not really saying it in the term like uh, you know Shakti. Yeah, it is it is described as as uh, later as a kind of a form of Shakti. But I'm thinking of um, Soma as in the Vedic context. Soma is the is the power that enlivens. It's, soma is that which converts dead matter into living mm. life. Um, yeah, and uh, and as such is uh, you know the, the drink for the gods uh, that is offered to the to the god Agni. Remember, I mentioned this a minute ago. Yeah, and so the the drink of of immortality, Amrita, um, the nectar. Um, and you know we might un understand this if we were trying to incorporate the uh, Vedic notions of soma. We can think of soma as that um, energizing kind of nectarian power and presence that infuses each cell of the body, mm. and, um, and as uh, as it infuses each cell of the body, it, it, it gives it life and, and brings and, and sustains sustains each cell of the body, so that uh, when we um, when we nourish and, and cultivate and and uh, and honor the presence of soma, as it were, when we honor the uh, honor life itself, um, we we can can often you hear it said that we can taste the nectar, we can taste the nectar of life, we can we can taste the presence of soma. Moving through the body and and, uh, and sustaining it. Yeah. Right. So so vach, <laughs> vach and soma. Vach is is uh, the creative um, word. Um, um, the 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 song that is sung through us. We we are we are the words of of, of this this goddess vach, the goddess vach. And soma is is the power that that then sustains us. You see, and and it's one of the it's really fascinating in in the Vedic ritual, um, the integration of of song and mantra with the offering of of soma to to the fire to the light. You see, it's all kind of held together in this this wonderful integrated whole. Um, by the way, I just wanted to mention. Uh, let's just use the word whole. I'm translating um, the Sanskrit word sarva there. Okay. The entire, the the entirety, the whole, the everything, and um, and that's what I translate in the book that you're referring to. I translate it as as universe, sarva and universe. So, so the artful universe is this whole that is uh, kind of uh, turning on this universal artful principle of ritta. That is sustained by soma, uh, expressed through vach. Do you see how yeah. it all fits together? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so beautiful, and I love I love these two concepts. I mean, I, I, I uh, they they are passed down, as you know, to the Kashmir Shaiva tradition, and 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 uh, that's how I've re I've found them, and I, I really enjoyed reading more about them in their kind of Vedic origins, and and one of the reasons I love vach so much is because it sort of 
um, moves us away from this idea of language as being sort of just a kind of representational thing that comes from our mouth and we just use it as a, in a pragmatic way to talk to each other and really and speaks to the kind of divine force of languages going all the way down to the very root mm -hmm. and then and 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 then also kind of you know imbues our linguistic capacity with a sense of um, you know div divinity and, and therefore devotion and mm -hmm. um, and 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 then of course it speaks to the kind of poetry. Well, then then it would make sense that you know a poetic kind of um, principle would be applied to how we then engage with that with that vach. And one of the things you talk about in the book um, is the sadhama, sadhamada. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Sadhamada. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the revel or drinking feast. Um, uh, where, is that where translated? Yeah, okay. where the the poets come together and sort of take stabs at being the most poetic, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Do you want to talk about that ritual a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, uh, is, uh, did I translate it? It's drinking feast. Okay. Yeah, yeah uh, I actually have quotes here. The revel or drinking feast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, well, in I, in part, what 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 they're drinking is soma. Right. Um, Were they the, physically the, drinking soma, or is this well, just? It's it's really hard to tell. It's hard to say. It's, uh, it's really hard to tell. I mean, at at the surface, you know, the narrative level, uh, it it looks like yes, they they may well have been drinking the soma. Um, here, then, we we need to ask, well, what was the soma physically? And we're not clear on what it was. And it, it, it's clear that it was a pressed plant. It was a plant that was squeezed through cloth. Uh, uh, you know, so there's some sort of essence that is um, obtained and then heated and refined and repressed and that sort of thing. I mean, pressed again, not repressed. But, um, so it became a liquid. And... Um, and this liquid was offered to the fire and, and drunk by the gods. Uh, and there are some suggestions here and there that um, that the poets, the vipras, uh, and in other words, kavi, the singers, um, would also drink the soma. There is a, a, a song from the Rig Veda where a description of the experience of drinking the soma leads to a kind of ecstasy. The um, the singer describes a kind of flying through the air and uh, from one horizon to the other horizon that sort of thing. Um, but um, it was during. Uh, well, let me back up. I'm, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. The the uh, the sadamada was a um, was a contest. How's that? That's, mm -hmm. that's another way of saying it. Um, where. Uh, uh, a verbal contest where singers, poets would 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 express their understanding, uh, would express their imaginative kind of uh, vision of of the various connections in the world, the the way things fit together, um, uh, the the, the uh, connections of cause and effect, and and that sort of thing. Those connections. Uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to kind of put say this uh, briefly, but but the 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 connecting kind of tissue, <laughs> if you will, yeah. the web that connected things together in the world, uh, were known originally as the Brahman. The uh, okay, so that uh, so that some visionaries were able to see the Brahman. Well, how is it that everything fits together? How is it that that things are connected? What is it that holds the world together rather than why doesn't it all just fall apart? You yeah. say, well, some were able, because they had drunk the Soma, were able to see the Brahman. And by seeing the Brahman, then able to put it into words, put that vision into words. And that became the poetry. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it looks as if these contests were such that they, they probably went on for quite a while because then uh, there was... Uh, Excuse me. There was evidence in some way that that one poet's poem was more powerful than another poem's poet's poem, because it because things in the world would have changed or not have changed. You see, wow. so so there were uh, those who were said to be able to see the Rachman more clearly, 
than others, they they became what are known as Brahmanas, the source of our word Brahman. Um, but originally they were they were the seers, the poets who uh, who um, enjoyed the the uh, exhilarating effect of soma, and um, and were able to then see how things fit together. Wow, I, I'm not joking when I say I think we should revive this this practice, this contest, <laughs> and bring all the mystics together and have them. <laughs> be poetic and we'll all see how we feel after each poem and then whoever feels the most transformed gets the prize <laughs> sounds amazing um so let's segue well, a little I think I, if, if i can put yeah. it in the debate it's not that whoever feels most transformed mm-hmm. it would be who transform whose poetry is most transformative for others yes yeah that's what i think that's, that's what i sort of meant to say is that that those who had attended would be the most transformed by which yes. I think is just an incredible like rule of thumb to to judge a contest by, <laughs> um, <laughs> rather than some kind of you know uh, arbitrary notion of technique or something that might be the ruler of another kind of uh, literary um, uh, practice. So let's segue to um, your work with the, the Bhakti tradition because I'd love to hear. I'm kind of interested in the relationship between these two things because I see the the clear relationship between your interest in Kashmir Shaivism and and what we've talked about because to me. It at least, uh, and maybe you disagree with this, but I feel like there's a there's a clear line um, between, particularly the concepts that we find in the Vedic tradition and and things that get explored in um, in Kashmir Shaivism. Um, but I'm interested then, you know, to hear a little bit about how this all relates to you to the Bhakti tradition, which I mean, at least from my perspective, I know it's all you know. We can see it all is interconnected, obviously, but there's a way in which I see the Bhakti practices as being somewhat different than maybe what we associate with the tantric practices or um, whatnot. So anyway, I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe um, that um, relationship from your perspective. Okay. Um, one of my favorite songs, suktas, now the word sukta means well, well spoken, sukta, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, poems, songs, um, from the Veda, the Rig Veda is what's known as the Nasadiya Sukta. It's, it's a creation story, and uh, in this um, creation story, that it, it starts out with absolute uh, non-dual, uh, transcendent um, feel of potential in, yeah. in which nothing yet exists, and yet the potential for everything exists. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's um, and and in this kind of uh, infinite boundless field of, you can't even say non-being because non-being is the opposite of being. And, and since there is no being, there is no opposite. You say so. Exactly, yeah. Complete, absolute non-dual potential. Um, that in some way, something stirs within this this field. And the, the sukta, the, the hymn, the song, the poem describes this as um, a yearning. Um, there's a, a yearning um, pervades or permeates that one. And, um, and then uh, that yearning, that yearning to be, then is the energy that leads to creation, that, mm-hmm. that everything that exists is a result of this 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 uh, this divine yearning to be, mm. yearning to exist. Okay, and um, um, the hymn translates that. I mean, the the Sanskrit in that hymn is actually kama, um, often translated as desire. I see it as not so much desire because desire supply suggests there's something to be desired. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. object. Uh, and so this is a, an objectless yearning to exist, okay? And that, uh, so I translate it as as love. And mm-hmm. there is there is a an, a profoundly profoundly powerful um, yearning to exist, and 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 that 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 the universe exists because of this this yearning and that everything that is is in some way an expression 
of this yearning to exist. Mm. And, uh, and I see it as, as profoundly affirming that, that each one of us uh, is, is, uh, is an expression of a divine yearning to exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I see that as a kind of, as, as love. I like to, I, I translate that as love. And I'm not talking about love as an emotion, although it's expressed in emotions. I'm not talking about love as a sentiment, yeah. although it's expressed in sentiment. It is it is the foundational creative and sustaining power of the universe. Okay. And, and, um, and that's what, uh, that's, that's kind of the link in my mind between Vedic and Vedantic and tantric sensibilities with bhakti sensibilities, because what, what bhakti is doing is responding to this, this universal power of love. Uh, I think you, you, you probably know that the word bhakti the word itself uh, comes from a verbal root that has something to do with sharing, with with distributing, with with um, um, offering, with giving. Um, it, it's a little bit like if you have a birthday cake and you cut it into slices so that you can share the cake with with others. Yeah, bhakti is is um, is a sharing in this this divine affirmation this 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 love that um that is this the source and and foundation and energy of of the universe from a from a, the bhakti perspective so so uh the the bhakti tradition is a tradition that that um is infused with a sense of response a response to the, to this intuition of of love, a universal kind of divine love here, mm-hmm. and that that response that is is a response in in kind. I mean, one shares the same sort of qualities. So, in other words, one responds to it with love. Mm-hmm. That there is the sense that one emerges, one's life emerges out of love. And so, then there is the response to the source, and that response is sharing that same quality, sharing love, in other words, and, and that sharing is bhakti. And, um, and uh, there are many practices that, um, that allow or support this kind of sharing in, dev- in love. Um, you're, you're familiar with them, the, the, uh, the, the Nama Sankirtana, the chanting yeah. of, the, of the divine name over and over again in, in, a, in a communal setting. Uh, serving sevana or or seva, um, the bhakti tradition recognizes dozens of, of practices. I, I've identified, I think it's 136 reading the bhakti traditions. I think I've located 136 of them, but but they are all understood to be ways in which um, um, mm-hmm. A meditation is a good one, <laughs> but ways in which one expresses gratitude and uh, and uh, you know I like I hear I, I go with these words again. You know the word gratitude is related to the word grace, and um, and so uh, these these practices allow one to express one's gratitude and uh, and and uh, put one's um, response in the context of, of a sense of a, of a divine presence. Yeah. I keep coming back to that word, okay? Uh, it's a okay. good one. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think historically, I, I, my sense is historically, there's been a sort of, there's been a little bit of a separation between, you know, Tantra as a tradition and Bhakti as a tradition. Yeah. Uh, or even Veda and Tantra and Bhakti, um, which in my mind is, is uh, for me, myself, is, 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 you know, it's kind of too bad because I think um, uh, Tantra, many, many of the forms of Tantra are actually expressions of, you know, of, of a kind of an alignment and participation in this, this affirming, Shakti, this affirming, this affirming presence in, in one's life, um, and and the bhakti is, you know, is 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 the same thing. I mean, 
Uh, I don't see the two as, as necessarily distinct from each other. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, I, I don't know if maybe there's been some work on this, of a, a, almost theological kind of engagement between the two traditions, um, because I think you're right, uh, they certainly seem complementary. And and um, and sometimes, you know, the, the, especially the Tantra as it's expressed in the Kashmir Shaivite tradition can get quite esoteric and a little bit heady almost. It's very, especially Abhinava Gupta's work is very dense. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes you could use a little bit of a heart opening bhakti practice. Well, yeah, that, that's, yeah, you, you put into words what I was just going to say, that, that sometimes it could be said that, um, that, you know, that, that the philosophy can get kind of dry, that, mm-hmm. that it can be, uh, it, it can seem almost like metaphysics or something like that. You say, yeah. And the various you know, the tattvas and all that, <laughs> and and I love it. And, yeah, uh, me too. Um, and and I, I I return to it over and over and over again. But it could be said that sometimes the 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 uh, the, the system, the tantra as a system, can for some people feel kind of dry. Yeah. And so there might be times when it could be good to have some heart in it. Yes. The, yeah. the experience of the heart and the experience of of gratitude and of, of fondness and affection and appreciation and, and the various emotions, even perhaps of sometimes of fear, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that the mind is kind of warmed by the heart mm-hmm. and the heart is informed by the mind. Yeah. Because if one just lives in the emotions all the time or the feelings or, you know, the, then then sometimes there can be confusion. And yeah, manipulation, yeah. Manipulation, that sort of thing. So in my mind, uh, a good yoga will integrate mind and heart. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good, that's sort of a good note to end on. Um, this has been such an interesting conversation and I really enjoyed exploring some of these topics with you, Bill. Is there anything you want to kind of add or is there anything that sort of, you know, based on what we've talked about might round up the conversation or bring it home as it were? <laughs> um, well, uh, how about this? There's, there's one, <laughs> there's one sutra from Narada's uh, Bhakti Sutra uh, that says, um, Sarvada Sarvabhavena Nishchantir Bhagavaneva Bhajaniya. I kind of stuttered there halfway through. But, uh, and I would translate it as uh, love alone is to be worshipped uh, with worry all the time with all of one's being. <laughs> um, and uh, to me, that, in a way, that integrates bhakti and tantra and veda. And I, 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 Will you just all. repeat that one more time? I just want to hear it one more time. The, the sutra itself? Both, uh, yeah, the sutra and the translation. Just one okay, more time. Okay, so, sarvada sarvabhavena nischantar bhagavaneva bhajaniya. Love. The, the word here is Bhagavan, but uh, but I'm going to translate it as love. Capital L, love. Uh, love only, or love alone, is to be worshipped without worry, all the time, with all of one's being. Mm, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Bill. That's been really, it's been lovely chatting with you. And um, I guess uh, before we close, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to maybe share where people can get in touch with you. And if there's any workshops or any trainings or anything else, people might look up to come find you. Um, sure. Do you want to share some of that? Sure. I, uh, I, I do travel across North America and uh, Europe a few times a year and Asia. I'll be going to Hong Kong in a few weeks, for example. I go to India frequently. Um, I have a a website. Well, I have two websites. One is is my college, my professor website. Mm -hmm. Another is my own personal website, which is the one for the retreats and and workshops. And that, uh, if if people would like to write it down, is WKM 
A-H-O-N-Y dot com. And that will give my schedule. That will give ways to buy books and, and that sort of thing. All right. Excellent. Well, thank okay. you so much, Bill, for uh, sharing your time with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jake, Jacob. It's It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thanks.